Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director for, of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. I'm thrilled to welcome everybody back for the fourth episode of our five-part series with uh, Dr. Uh, Dan Jenkins and Kathy Guthrie on their new book, The Role of Leadership Educators, Transforming Learning. Today uh, we are going to be discussing the characteristics of distinctive leadership programs. Dr. Kathy Guthrie is an Associate Professor of Higher Education in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at Florida State University, and Dr. Dan Jenkins is Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. Welcome, Dan and Kathy. Hi. Hello. Well, happy to, happy to have you all back uh, for Episode 4 here. Before we uh, get into Chapters 5 and 6, which uh, this particular episode is going to focus on, um, I thought we could uh, uh, just get to know you all a little bit better. Dan, I know you're a big runner, so uh, I wondered, um, what is your favorite song to run to? Favorite song? Well, I, I put together a, um, a Pandora um, you know, station uh, years ago when I got into running. Uh, here, here in Maine, it wasn't something that I did before I moved up here either. Um, I was more into to weight training and things of that nature. Um, but I ended up hurting my shoulder um, and had to do some surgery and rehab, and and found, hey, you know what? It doesn't get too hot up here, uh, even even in July and August. And so, uh, you know, the running and you know, got some just some beautiful landscape and and there's some nice hills and things. And so, um, my Pandora uh, playlist or, or list, uh, and then. Uh, was based around the song by the Black Eyed Peas, I Got a Feeling. Uh, I like the upbeat uh, nature there, um, and it pulled off, put a lot of other uh, similar uh, tunes into that. So um, that, one, that one really hits the, hits the mark for me. Um, and, and honestly, anything from 90s rap and hip-hop um, is going to complement that. So um, I'll say uh, I'll go with that one, and that's my final answer. <laughs> okay, perfect. That was a good job picking one thing. I feel it seems to me like you might be less passionate about the music than you run to than you are about craft beer. That's an observation that I've made. Uh, all right, Kathy, so now that you have a book targeted at adults that you've completed, although I suppose uh, you know a, a you know a child could read this book. Um <laughs> do do you have any juvenile writing adventures in your future? I love that juvenile writing. As I said, I think in a previous podcast, how my um, memoir is growing older but not up. <laughs> I think about um, children's books. I think are a really interesting market, and actually, I'm embarking on writing. Yes, writing at least one book, maybe a series of books about a little girl named Chloe, and she's a superhero. And so really, in her, she, doesn't, she can fly because flying's cool, but her superpowers are just what she has, right? Like being kind and being nice and helping people. So she's not going to have any extraordinary powers like, you know, the lasso of truth or any, anything like that. But so, yeah, absolutely. I just have found that there's um, very few, actually. There's a lot of books out there for children, but very few that really, I think, um, target little girls and, you know, confidence and how are they being kind to others and some of the things that I know I want my daughter to learn. And so I'm embarking on it with a good friend and we are going to get, we're actually going to have it done this summer and get it out and published. It's very exciting. It's using a very different side of my brain <laughs> than 
um, other things that I that I work on. So yeah, excited about it. Yeah, I believe I, I believe that would be a very uh, a very different side of your brain. And as someone with a soon to be three year old, the world really needs uh, really needs better children's books. So. I agree. Oh, isn't that the truth? So that's why although, I said I'm going to do something about it. <laughs> although I do think really bad children's books tend to be funny. Like I'm amused yeah, by really bad. <laughs> Like Eric Carle of uh, of Very Hungry Caterpillar and yes. uh, Brown Bear Brown Bear fame has this book called yes. Friends. Do, oh. do any of y'all's kids have friends? Uh uh-uh. uh Okay, well it is terrible in a way. So <laughs> the gist is a, a young boy and a young girl are friends. The girl moves away, and the boy goes through this sort of like uh, like hallucinogenic uh, journey to go find her. And then he finds her, and then they get married. Oh, that's the that's the summary. So, um, <laughs> I you know thank Eric Carl. That I think that guy's more of a stylist than a writer. That's my yeah my that's my take. But anyway, if you'd like <laughs> to, I would not buy it, but uh, it might be worth looking up at the library. I will have to. Yes, <laughs> what not to do? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. The first time I read it, I was like, "Vincent got married." That's the story. <laughs> <laughs> like not find your friend, yeah. just like be creepy and run away from home, and then like you know, I just didn't make any mm-hmm. sense. Um, all right, Dan. Well, in other news, let's let's stay with the the running front here. You ran a marathon, and you're now training for a half marathon. Um, what about that process made you want to go back for more? What made you like, you know what? I'm gonna do this again. I'm ready. Yeah, I mean it's it's a simple simple answer. Uh, the more you run, the more uh, beer you can drink, and so. Um, I'm going <laughs> to, so, you know, you gotta, especially in the summer, you know, you gotta, you gotta burn those, burn those calories and, uh, and make room cause those double IPAs and those, those stronger beers are, are loaded in calories. Uh, so, but no, I, so I ran my, my first marathon on last, last October, um, you know, and, um, trained for, for a half marathon. Now the, the process, I mean, it's, um, it's a great way to clear your head, um, you know, st- to, to stay in shape, uh, you know, go out, you know, just to be outside, um, you know, and, and where we live, you know, there's, there's some routes where I can get close to, to the bay or to some rivers or just some beautiful, uh, you know, na- naturous areas. And, um, you know, I think that if the, if the training was, you know, uh, <laughs> Not, not to knock uh, or, or knock on Tampa, but you know, if it was uh, 90 and humid uh, for six months <laughs> out of the year, I probably wouldn't be training outside, and you know, would be stuck on the treadmill. But you know, even you know, there, there's you know six or eight weeks up here where it, um, you know, doesn't get above freezing, and um, if it's below 20, I'm not going outside um, for for anything um, for the most part. But you can usually bundle up if it's 20 or over, and. Um, you know, you, you get your heart rate up, you sweat, and you're warm, and you're fine, and um, just that process of, of, of connecting with, with the outdoors and, and staying in shape. Um, and, again, the more you run, the more craft beer you can drink. <laughs> well, Dan's uh, title, uh, if he was going to write a reflection on running, it would be uh, running away those double IPA. Correct. That's right. <laughs> could be his, uh, his memoir title. All right, Kathy, uh so you uh, are not a Florida native. Um, what have you found? What do you really love about life in Florida? 
So I actually, you know, yes, I love the humidity and the heat. I grew up um, south of Chicago, <laughs> and so it's always cold. feels like it's always cold except for, like, those, like, you know, a couple of weeks in there. And the fact that I haven't shoveled snow, that I don't have to worry about, oh, can I drive in the snow? Like, is it going to dump on me? Um, I really just, I feel like my quality of life is in, that it's really gone up. I feel like I can, I do. I'm outside every day. I'm, I'm running in the heat and humidity and train in the, <laughs> the heat, and I love it. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I would say, you know, life in Florida, and it's much more laid back, too. Like, people are just very casual and laid back because of, you know, just kind of the, the feel with the water so near, and it's just, um, I have friends that will vacation um, in Florida, obviously, and will be like, gosh, you live here. I'm like, yes, I still have a job, and I still, but it is a much slower lifestyle, I would say, or um, less stress, and the fact that I can wear casual clothes anywhere, and it's totally fine, is very exciting for me, <laughs> so, so several things about Florida that I like. <laughs> All right, so, uh, Kathy, in, in Chapter 5, to transition to, to the mm-hmm. content there, uh, not to... I feel like if this podcast series was a was a uh, was a movie, it would have like a, like a real uh, Florida and uh, on the water of Maine sort of like tinge to it. Uh, so to so to, to so to move move away from that in in chapter five, um, you'll share an interesting comparison between the various levels of context and uh, Russian nesting dolls, um, which I thought was a really interesting analogy. I think, I think there's a couple of really interesting sort of, uh, sort of comparisons that you'll find in the book there. Um, and so would you, would you be willing to share that particular, that particular thought, which, you know, on the, on the outset is, you know, oh, you know, it's not necessarily a connection I would, I would make. So curious right, right. Yeah, you know, and the Russian nesting dolls, I'm not sure if everyone knows what those are, but when they're, there's typically, you know, when you open up a doll, then there's another one inside of it, and it just keep you can keep opening them up. And and for me, it's that you know institutions of higher education really, I feel like there are multiple levels, like from the out from I say outside, but from looking, you could say, oh, this institution is one culture, and then you open it up and you're like, oh, but then the Division of Student Affairs has another culture or context, right? It's a different it's different than the larger institution. And he could open it up again and say, oh, this is interesting that the dean of students office within the you know, context of the division of student affairs within the context of this you know, institution is very different. And then you could even open it up further and it could be, oh, well, Greek life is in dean of students or maybe the leadership program is in Dean of Students' office, what does that look like? And then you can even open it up further, and it's what does a specific program look like? And so the various contexts all really influence each other, but from the outside it looks like it's just one big doll. And then when you start opening it, you're like, oh, there's another. Oh, there's another. And you can continue, you know, and I've heard that as like peeling the you know, layers of an onion. or You know, there's multiple ways of looking at that. But I think that this is, you know, context is so important that, you know, it looks like one, but then when you start opening it up, you can start seeing, you know, how deep it can really go. All right, perfect. So, um, to, to, Kathy, to kind of keep going along that same thought, at what point are the various levels of context considered for you in the, in the program planning process? 
Well, I think definitely you need to think about the multiple complexities of different contexts in the very beginning when you're, you know, trying to figure out, well, where should we do a program and what should it be? Part of that planning process is definitely up front is really kind of teasing out some of those um, complex contexts. But then I also would say that at every step of the way, context should be thought about. It's when we put context kind of, oh, no, it'll take care of itself is when it can kind of come back and, and um, I would say bite us, right? Like we're, oh, we did this program, and that's not really a program for undergraduate students, but it's more for professional students or, you know, and so thinking about, you know, uh, context and also the sense of what is happening politically on your campus or in your region, in your community, uh, and so forth. So not only, you know, the institutions, but we talk about this extensively in the book about that it's not only institution and all the nesting dolls, right, in the institution, but then it's community, it's state, it's region, it's, you know, the United States, it's global because we have international students, right? And so it just um, is much more of, you know, multiple contexts than it might appear. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at it at every part of the planning process. Alrighty, so in our preparation conversation, y'all mentioned the artificial divide between curricular and co-curricular leadership programs, and um, those distinctions are a kind of those distinctions are a kind of context that are noted uh, that are noted in this chapter. So, Dan, um, you know, certainly there are some divides between curricular and co-curricular. You know, credit bearing, for instance, and so. Um, what ways do you think, when you're planning, um, do you think that that divide is something to consider, co-curricular versus versus curricular? Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, you know, credit bearing or not credit bearing is uh, is very important in the in the planning process with with respect to uh, what you can. Uh, with the expectations that you can have for your for the students in those learning environments, um, you know, it, are students that are doing something not for credit uh, as likely to read more than one textbook? Um, you know, can, what, what can you what, what can you put into your into your curricular design, um, both from a content uh, uh, learning activities um, and assessment and feedback procedures? Um, I think that. Um, that's very important from the in the planning process. I think I think that there's probably more opportunities to um, to go deeper with that in the curric on in the curricular side. Um, you know, different ways that you might assess learning. Um, those could be graded. You can provide feedback. You know, there's that um, you know that quick pro quo. There's that expectation that you know learners are going to do something in your class and you're going to grade it and give them feedback and they're going to earn, you know, credit and they're going to earn a grade in class and so you can be very uh, intentional and mindful of your assessment procedures, your learning activities and, and, and how you kind of schedule that over the course of, say, 15 weeks. Um, so I think that, that that can be important. Um, at the same time, though, um, you know, I, I think that um, we can borrow a lot from the academic side into the co-curricular side and, um, and add some more intentionality to some of the activities that, that go on there. Some of the challenges, of course, are, you know, uh, students might come to a program that's 75 minutes uh, and offered once, once a semester or once a year, um, because they could be very topic-based. Topic um, there may, may or may not be an opportunity for follow-up um, with, with these students or pre-work. 
um, you know, unless it's uh, unless it's designed that way. Um, and so um, I think that you know that's where the divide is in, is important in planning is you need to know what you're what you're working with and what um, you know what expectations you can you can realistically have um, in those two different types of, of learning. Um, but I think that the content um, can generally be uh, very similar. Um, how it's delivered, um, sometimes you have to gauge it to, to the audience and meet the students where they're at. Alrighty, um, Kathy, to sort of break down this, this artificial divide, what ways do you think this co-curricular curricular divide, uh, what ways do you think that that's given too much power? You know, and Dan, I think, really just spoke beautifully to this about that the content is very similar, right? And it's how we gauge where learners are at and how do we present it depending on, depending on that context, whether it's curricular or co-curricular. And so when I think about what is given too much power, it's when we automatically have assumptions that it wouldn't work in the, in the, other, in the other, whether it's curricular or co-curricular. So, for example, um, I've heard before and have felt this way before, well, I don't know if students would do that because I'm not, they're not required to come to class, <laughs> right? So we have training for student leaders, but they're not required to come, and I'm not, I can't give them a grade. But you can still do some of the similar types of assessments, you know, like some of the best things that I've done in co-curricular settings have been like the personal mission statements and really getting them to write down, well, what do you think? Is important to you, which I also do that in the curricular setting as well. And so I think sometimes, sometimes this power piece is a lot of assumptions, and how do we then maybe tweak it a little bit so that it does appeal to a co-curricular setting, or it might be you know that's not you know a minute fifteen or a minute an hour fifteen minutes you know twice a week, but how are we doing it so that it is in regular meetings? And so. I would say sometimes that power is, oh, I just don't know if that would, because I can't grade them. So I think the grading is where that power, which then I think a whole other conversation is, well, then how are we grading? Because that's, the, you know, if we're trying to co-learn with students and trying to take them on this journey of learning, but then you're grading them, that's another interesting power dynamic. But that's, that's a whole other, I think, whole other podcast, right, that we don't want to get into, but I think it is an interesting thing to think about when, we're also looking at this artificial divide between the two, especially with leadership programming and learning. All right, so Dan, to transition to Chapter Six, so that so that chapter provides a real benchmark to which programs can, can uh, a real benchmark to which programs can strive to achieve. And so y'all summarize the observations there as such after an extensive after an extensive extensive literature review five major characteristics for distinctive leadership programs emerge. You then outline the five characteristics, which we're going to jump to in just a second. But to help catch folks up on who they should be looking towards in their own planning, what data and research researchers were included in that, li in that um, literature review? Sure. No, great question. You know, we, um, a lot of the, the research that I've done has not only been on, on educators, but also on, on programs. And um, one of the, the sources um, that we're able to get a lot of our data from, uh, the International Leadership Association has a directory of leadership programs on their, on their website. It's one of the resources um, that, that they offer. And, you know, that, that's an extensive array of, uh, and, and searchable database of, um, 
of different uh, of leadership programs all over the globe. And, and Kathy and I asked for permission, you know, from the association to use that data um, to learn uh, a bit about the different types of degrees that are offered, uh, the different culture, the different, um, you know, uh, uh, institutionally where are they situated, you know, are they in, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in schools of business or education, it's funny because, you know, people say, oh, well, what do you do? Oh, you know, I teach leadership. Oh, really? Is that like in the College of Business? Well, actually, it's in, you know, and, and it's a different uh, it's a different response for anybody in the field because they could be working out of student activities. They could be in the provost's office. They could be in uh, the political science department. They could be, you know, fill in the blank. And, and the, the research suggests that it is all over the place. And so that was one of the places where we um, – where we got a lot of information about all the different uh, places, um, you know, whether they're disciplinary or graduate or co-curricular or, uh, or integrative, you know, that leadership programs uh, exist and, and, you know, really learning about breaking down um, the different components of those programs. Uh, one of the key researchers uh, or research that we found on this uh, was something that I came across really early when I was writing my dissertation um, this guy that graduated um, um, from Wisconsin, uh, Darren Ike, um, and he uh, is a prolific speaker and, and has written a couple books. Um, he put together a grounded theory model of high-quality leadership programs um, uh, that was published in the Journal of Leadership and Organizational Studies in 2008 um, and, and later wrote a book called Root Down and Branch Out um, about this, this idea. Um, and he found that through his research and studying leadership programs um, around the country, very distinctly in his dissertation, which is what the article came from, um, that there were three major clusters um, that were reflective of these high-quality leadership programs. And the first one was that the uh, participants were engaged in building and sustaining a learning community. And so um, within that, leadership programs um, were facilitated by those involved. You know, there were diverse students and experienced practitioners the educators kind of modeled, you know, the practice and the behaviors that they wanted the students to um, to have, and it was a very supportive cult, uh, supportive culture. Uh, one of the other clusters was that was uh, that there were student-centered experiential learning experiences, and so you know that echoes very well to what Kathy and I talked about about you know the meaning making and the learner-centered, um, and so that you know reflection was deeply embedded and things were very applied, theory, practice, uh, discussion-based. Uh, that there was opportunities for episodes of difference um, and, and experiential learning. And then the final cluster uh, was that there was research-grounded continuous program development, you know, that the design was flexible, um, that the content was, was highly valued and intentional, uh, that we talked about systems um, and organizations, um, you know, very much so uh, in the programs. And so, you know, it was... Um, that really, you know, got us thinking it was important to, to go back and, and reflect on, on Ike's work um, and kind of couple that with what uh, Kathy and I know from our own experiences, uh, as well as some of the work that we've done visiting, you know, other campuses and working with other leadership programs and, and just talking to, to our peers within, within our network that I really uh, think gave that, that, that chapter um, its shape. Perfect. Okay. So, uh, so let's go ahead and, and jump to these five characteristics. So again, let's make this as practical, practical as possible for folks. So I thought we could walk through each characteristic, note the hallmarks of that type of distinction, 
and then provide a real-life example of a program meeting that standard. I love the examples laid out in Chapter 7, and I thought that they would be worth highlighting uh, in this context as well. So, Kathy, how about this? What, you know, if you're coming onto a campus and you're doing a program review or whatever the case may be, and, you know, you're going over this and you say, absolutely, this is the first, uh, the first characteristic is intentionally designed programs. So, uh, Kathy, what would make you say, like, this is an intentionally designed program, what sort of characteristics, and what's an example of one of those programs that's out there in the world? Right, you know, and I would say it goes back to, it goes back to that, you know, can you communicate what learning outcome you are trying to target with the program, and then how are you connecting it all the way through the program? So is that learning outcome connected to appropriate instructional strategies and assessment strategies? Are you taking into consideration context? What even type of conceptual framework are you using for that program? If you're doing the teaching and learning of leadership, what, what theories are you or frameworks are you using to support that? I would say a great um, example, or not maybe example, but guiding kind of questions that you can um, use for this. So, because there's a lot of great intentionally designed programs out there. So instead, I'm going to kind of shift that a little bit to say a tool that is excellent to use is the International Leadership Association. Back in I think 2011, it provided um, they've been working on it for years. But how are you? Um, using these questions. So they developed five overarching questions that focuses on standards or how do you intentionally design a program. And I felt like the questions were good because you do have to take into consideration context at your own institution. And so the first one is context. How, so of the International Leadership Association's five questions, the first one is, says, how does context of the leadership education program affect what you are doing, what the program that you are trying to create. And then the second one is, what is the conceptual framework of the leadership education program? What is the content of the leadership education program and how is it derived? What are the students' developmental levels and what teaching and learning methods are most appropriate to ensure maximum student learning? And then what are the intended outcomes of the leadership education program and how are they assessed and used to ensure continuous quality improvement. And so you can hear all these themes from start to finish. How are you, what are the learning outcomes, and then how are you assessing for continuous program improvement? And there was actually a new directions for student services in 2012 that focused on using these, these questions, ILA's guiding questions in program design. And there are many well-designed programs out there. And so I would um, hate to say one at this because I think this is something that if you have these guiding questions and you can really focus on, well, what are my learning outcomes and how do I connect it through and, you know, with instructional strategies, assessment strategies, and so forth, you really can intentionally design a program which can make it distinctive. Perfect. So, Dan, how about this one? So the next one is authentic leadership learning environments. Yeah, you know, one of the things that comes to mind there, um, you know, and I sh uh, we talked about this a little bit in, in one of the earlier podcasts, uh, is the uh, collegiate leadership competition. Um, and I think that it, you know, it's authentic with, you know, their, their kind of go-to, their, their mission, vision there is, you know, with practice, leadership is, available to all um, and the uh, you know the purpose of the competition is you know to create a practice field but also a competitive uh, 
you know, um, context and, and, and avenue, if you will, for, uh, for leaders to, uh, to compete in. You know, the, um, the program, uh, it, it has a very set curriculum. Um, it is a combination of, of skill building and team building, um, but also trust building and, and learning how to, you know, to work with, with, uh, with diverse peers um, through embedded in uh, quite a bit of, of leadership theory and, and, con- uh, and knowledge. And so, um, I, you know, I think that that access piece is, is, very, is very important, um, you know, in whether it be curricular or co-curricular, um, that makes it authentic, that, you know, these programs are designed for, um, you know, as, as many uh, and as much cultural and social diversity as, as possible. Um, and I think that, you know, the role of the instructors to kind of break down, you know, what makes that authentic, um, you know, is that they, you know, there's the content knowledge and there's that facilitative, um, you know, competency uh, that the instructor has that they, you know, they know where they're going, they're beginning with the end in mind, their, their goals may be, you know, developing this team, taking them through Texman's stages of, of group development, um, you know, to build a more cohesive um, group of students that understand what it means to, to work together on a highly, uh, on a highly effective um, team and to model you know, the feedback and the facilitative skills um, and the problem-solving skills uh, that are going to be necessities for um, that student team uh, or teams uh, to, be, to be successful. Um, and then, you know, with the other components there is that idea of, you know, supportive yet challenging environments. Um, they should be supportive, yes. You should be, you know, giving, you know, con- uh, g- good feedback, uh, certainly, you know, um, you know, encouraging the heart and uh, providing opportunities where students can be recognized for the things that are, are great that they've done, but also challenging. Um, you know, students need to uh, receive constructive feedback um, so that they can develop that, that skill of both of receiving uh, that feedback and making changes and, you know, reflecting on that and going through Kolb's uh, experiential learning model of, you know, making meaning from those experiences and that feedback, whether in a leader or follower role, and then coming back uh, and trying it again, um, but also being able to, to give that constructive feedback to the instructor uh, when, when it is necessary and appropriate, but also to your peers. Um, and so through those, uh, through those components, it, it is very much um, an integrative learning environment. You know, you want both the uh, instructor to be, to be fair and direct and transparent and, and open with their feedback and, and constructive criticism, uh, as well as as the students, um, and I think that you know that creates that uh, again that unseen architecture um, of a, of an authentic leadership learning environment. That's it's a safe space. It's a brave space where you can make mistakes, uh, learn from your peers, and and develop as a leader. All right, Kathy. How about the next uh, characteristic of distinctive leadership programs: application of knowledge, skills, and values. Right, and this is one that I think we typically think of with leadership programming and leadership development programming more specifically is that we want to make sure that they're not, um, learners are not only just better understanding knowledge and skills and values, but how are they actually applying it to their everyday lives and practicing it. And so, of course, experiential learning, which Dan had talked a little bit about in the last, you can see how these all really absolutely um, influence each other in these distinctive um, programs, these characteristics, but then also service learning 
is another um, specific kind of example of how we can apply knowledge, skills, and values. But I would say even opening it up more to experiences and leadership. And so an example of this is actually a course that we do at Florida State, and I'm just going to use this as an example. There are actually many courses, with, and people call them different things at different institutions, but we call it leadership experience, and students have to complete some type of an experience, and that can be an internship, it can be service learning, it can be research, it could be anything that they are able to apply their leadership learning. And so they, and it goes through, we use some of Parker Palmer's work and how, you know, let your life speak and how does that connect with what you're doing. And we really want it to be based in students' discipline, so what they're wanting to do as their future career, kind of their career path, but how are they experiencing leadership, whether that's a positional leadership, whether it's service, as I mentioned, all the different kinds, research, internship, you know, there's multiple ways. And then how are they making meaning from that? And so it's that application piece is this is how it shows up for me, and this is how I make meaning from the leadership learning and then apply it to, you know, what I want to be doing. And so, you know, there are multiple ways, you know, as I had mentioned, the biggest ways we always go to is experiential and service, but I would also say even making it broader and saying what are these experiences in leadership that then students can really draw upon and apply their knowledge, skills, and values to. All right, Dan, how about the uh, fourth distinctive characteristic, uh, meaning-making through reflection? Right. Yeah, so, you know, like like metacognition, um, you know, reflection is, is making meaning of knowledge and experiences to, to learn and grow. And so, um, you know, where we see this in, um, you know, in our, uh, in our curriculum and in our, in our programs, um, I, I think that, gosh, I mean, there's, there's so many, um, you, you know, to piggyback on, on what Kathy was referring to with some of the, the service learning, you know, I think that, um, when debriefed well, um, and I think that that's probably one of the uh, the key factors there is um, that the facilitators um, in whether it be curricular or co-curricular, you know, uh, facilitators or the the faculty member, um, that they are aware um, of this important um, component of of leadership learning is that students are not going to um, learn leadership. Um, without that meaning-making process, um, you know, and so um, whether it be something very highly ex uh, experiential or, or high active learning, high impact practices, you know, simulation and role-playing games and, um, you know, uh, uh, multimedia-based presentations and things of that nature, um, if there's not that intentional debriefing uh, phase and process that, that's connected there, um, the students are not going to um, be connected to uh, to what you had hoped uh, for them to learn to be able uh, to learn or to learn to be able to do um, through those through those experiences. And so, you know, to, to gosh, to, it, it would be hard to find one specific um, example of you know of a program that that does this uh, you know exceedingly well. Um, but I but I think about you know any program that. Um, does keep that in mind when they're having curriculum meetings, having faculty meetings, you know, when the staff comes together, um, that that is a skill that is being uh, discussed uh, open and often, um, and 
that there's you know training and development opportunities that are provided for those instructors to to fine tune those skills, ask the right questions uh, to students, uh, and make sure that that processing, uh, that meaning making through those reflective activities is is essential. Uh, focus of uh, any programming that goes on. Alrighty, so Kathy, how about how about you close us out for for episode four here with uh, continuous program improvement, the final distinctive characteristic. Right. Yeah. So we always, I mean, our goal is always to make a program better from the year before or the time you've offered it before, and so really making sure that this is a critical and key part is the assessment and how are we continually improving. And I had mentioned this in an earlier podcast is that sometimes assessment is not, you know, it's added on. Oh, let's, let's see how things are doing. And so how are you actually starting with assessment plans in the intentional programming? So really looking at the intentional design, how is assessment included in that so that it is continuously a part of what, what we're doing? Um, and we'll talk more actually on our fifth and final podcast more about assessments because that is a critical piece that we, we tackle. But I would say, you know, ways for this continuous program improvement can be challenging. There's actually a lot of challenges to, uh, you know, collecting assessments, especially with something like leadership because oftentimes it doesn't, programs might not produce immediate results. When you're learning about leadership, it could take a few days, a few years, who knows how long, for some of those lessons, to, that seed that was planted to really fully grow and to really be realized. And so, you, you know, you have to think about how do we get beyond program improvement as far as satisfaction, so like satisfaction surveys, and beyond that and saying, oh, the seats weren't comfortable, or the seats were comfortable, or oh, hey, I really liked this type of food, right? So the satisfaction of the actual program to how are we improving the program as far as the learning that is occurring and how do we assess that learning, especially when it might not happen right away. And so that is definitely a challenge, but how are we putting and striving for that? I would say a great example um, are the I programs at the Illinois Leadership Center. They have a series of programs, and they're called I programs, so they all start with I. So there's like you know, Inside, Ignite, Imprint. I mean, they have several of them, but they're very intentional about assessment of learning at each of these programs, and they do several of these programs or multiple times a year, but then they look at, well, how do we improve whether it's a one little section that talks about, you know, self-awareness, how are we tightening up that section so that that learning and that communication of knowledge or, you know, how are we developing that so that learning can occur better? And so they have some great assessment put in place that is part of their program planning. So it's not the additional add-on like, oh, shoot, I forgot I need to do an assessment, which I know I have done um, in the past. But they're, I think that's a great example of how they then revisit their curriculum to continually improve it so that the I programs have longevity and that they're continuing to evolve as we are evolving as leadership educators, but also as our students are evolving. Well, that is that's great information to think about related to related to continuing to work, and I think a really a really great charge. So um, we will dive more into assessment in uh, in the final episode that we've got coming up next week. So 
Thanks, everyone, for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Thanks again to Drs. Kathy Guthrie and Dan Jenkins. Their book, The Role of Leadership Educators Transforming Learning, which is the subject of this conversation, is available now. Uh, you can get more information about the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is at facebook.com backslash lead, on Twitter at NASPASLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your pro- programs. So please shoot an email over to NASPAleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Kathy and Dan. Thank you. Thanks.